everybody. Hiya. About three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I was wearing the same rather boring and dull shirt. <laughs> I'll get to that, Richard. <laughs> you, you now obviously know who the culprit is, but I'll tell you. So anyway, so um, Richard comes up to me and he says, he says, I need to take issue with your sartorial choices, my brother. Now, now sartorial choice is just a posh word for I don't like your shirt. <laughs> and then he explains, you know, in a jovial fashion, how a man my age really shouldn't be wearing <laughs> colours like this, you know, should be far more conservative, etc. And for goodness sake, if I am going to wear some anglers, please tuck it in, man, <laughs> with a nice belt. I could almost hear him saying, what's next, skinny jeans and sneakers? Adam's wife said she'd pay money to see me in skinny jeans. <laughs> but, you know, don't worry, Richard. I've brought an alternative. You see, <laughs> I can easily just slip into it. In fact, I've preached many a sermon in this, especially the ones about gloom and doom. You know, hellfire and judgment, things like this. Very appropriate for this. I quite, I quite fancy this shirt, especially if I could get one of those little white collars that goes underneath it. It would be really, really... Really quite cool. I want to use that shirt and this one as a sort of a visual metaphor for the kind of choices that are facing us as we go into 2019. How we respond, how we speak, what we do as we enter this year that lies before us. Are we going to be speaking words and actions of gloom and doom into our nation? or bright words of optimism and hope and faith. And I'm not talking about just vain sort of positive confession stuff and unrealistic things. I'm talking about if this, if we truly believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is present in our lives and present in our nation, then surely we should speak words and do things which give evidence to that fact. Words that bring hope, words that bring life. Words that bring light and encouragement. For if he is with us, surely we need to be telling the folk, listen, God is with us and acting accordingly. I want to take a passage of scripture to develop this, which comes from Nehemiah chapters 1 to 9, which, by the way, incidentally, I'm sure I have it on great authority. Richard told me that... <laughs> that surely this is President Donald Trump's favorite passage in all of Scripture. It's about the building of the wall. <laughs> and believe me, it's going to be huge. <laughs> but it's got good lessons for us. It's got encouragement for us. It's got lessons to open up about the tactics of the enemy and how we counter that in a positive, godly way. And so it's something that we need to look at and dwell on. And I'd encourage you to afterwards, when you get home or tomorrow, whatever it is, read carefully through these passages. Because I'm not going to read all of it to you. It's nine chapters. I'm going to pick up just on some highlights. All right. First of all, a little bit of background. Just three points that we need to understand to be able to grasp the story better. One is the fact that the Babylonian Empire conquered Israel. And took most of its people away into bondage, into slavery in Babylon. But then the Persian Empire rose up as the dominant world power and conquered the Babylonians. And when they took over power, 
they allowed the Jews to go back to their homeland. And a whole bunch of them did. Went back into the land of their birth. Some stayed behind. People like Nehemiah. And he probably stayed behind because he was the cupbearer to the king. He had risen to a place in the royal palace. Now a cupbearer, yeah, a cupbearer did take the wine and he did have to sip it before the king drank from it because they liked to poison their kings in those days. Uh, but he did much more than that. He was like a major domo or uh, sort of a, a combination between head butler and security chief. So he was a really important person in the Persian royal palace. He was also the king's confidant because, you know, he spent a lot of time with the king. He was a constant companion. Third thing to understand for the story is that the Persian court had some very strict rules. And they were enforceable by death. If you didn't obey the rules of court, you could lose your head, literally. One of them was no sadness, no negativity, no depression, no downward cast faces in the presence of the king. Not allowed. If you entered the presence of the king, you were not allowed to wear that shirt. No doom and gloom. You had to wear this shirt. So I'd be an acceptable cupbearer, you see. Okay, that's just a little bit of background. Now, the saga covers nine chapters. So the rebuilding of the wall and its immediate aftermath. There's nine chapters of the book of Nehemiah. So it's really easy to get lost in all that. Because as I go through the story, it's going to be he did this, he said that, then he did this, then this happened, and then that happened. And to avoid getting lost along the path, I want to set before you right at the beginning the four main things I want to draw out from this passage. The first is the uncanny parallels between Israel then, in those days, and South Africa now. I mean, history really does repeat itself. And there really is nothing new under the sun. And you'll see these uncanny echoes of the past coming through in our current situation. Secondly, the tactics used by those who oppose the reconstruction and the rebuilding of a nation. Same then. Same today. And the third thing is some ways, some godly ways, some positive godly ways to counter those. Not through insurrection, not through violence, but in a godly, peaceable, positive way. These come through this passage as well. And lastly, the absolute necessity for prayer followed by action. You'll see that as a golden theme right the way through here. Pray and act. Pray and act. Not pray or act. Or act without prayer. Pray and act. Now the first lesson that we can pick up from these first nine chapters is right at the very beginning of it. And it's a very obvious one, but it needs stating. In, in right at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Nehemiah's brother has gone for a visit to Jerusalem. And he returns to the Persian Empire. And he reports back to his brother and tells him what's happening. And, and listen to this. Nehemiah's brother comes back and he says, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. I know I'm stating the obvious, but it's a lesson nevertheless. The first response to any kind of crisis, any kind of problem that we confront, is to actually acknowledge it. To become aware of it, because I mean, it's obvious. If we're not aware of something, if we don't actually acknowledge its presence as a real thing, how are we going to know how to pray? How are we going to know how to speak? How are we going to know what to do? 
We'll just be buffeted and drawn along by the circumstances of the world around us. We've got to become aware. And following out of awareness must come informed knowledge. Once we're in aware, once we're saying, hey, man, look, there's really a problem here. We can't just gloss it over. It's like the stories coming out of Zimbabwe right now. As the week unfolded, first of all, there were these rumors, and then there were these uh, like secret recordings that were circulated on WhatsApp, and then some of the newspapers said something, and TV had a little bit of something, and then other people came back from Zimbabwe and said, no, man, it's totally overblown. It's not really as bad as that. You know, they've got problems, but... And until you can actually get the information at hand, how are we supposed to respond? Until we can sift out all the nonsense and say, yeah, this actually is the problem. Become well-informed. Now, in our situation in South Africa, I'm, I'm not a closet politician, and I certainly have no aspirations in that line. But I try as best I can to become well-informed. I've read the major books on what's happening in our country. I follow the, the weekly articles from reputable sources. I follow the overseas press and what they're saying about it and so on. Because I think every citizen, and certainly every Christian citizen in this country, needs to be informed. There is so much nonsense out there, so much lies, so much false news. We need to inform ourselves as to what the situation is so we may know how to pray and know how to speak and know how to act. I know some folk really prefer to become ignorant of what's happening. There's, there's a sort of a mentality abroad among some folk which says, look, you know, I can't do anything about it, and God's in control, and what will be will be, and, you know, that, that's all there is to it. That's kind of a Christian fatalism, as far as I'm concerned. And it isn't what Jesus taught. Yeah, Jesus said, your Father in heaven knows everything you need before you ask it. Yes. He says, trust me for everything, yes. But he also says things like this. In Matthew 16, verse 24, he's talking to the Pharisees who have demanded a sign from him that he is in truly the Messiah. And he says, look, even your shepherds know how to read the sky at night. If it's pink at night, they know it's going to be a great morning. If it's pink in the morning, they know it's going to be storming. They must get their sheep under cover. So if your shepherds know how to read the signs... And to make judgment based on that, surely you, wise men, should do likewise. It's a pretty clear injunction that we all need to become really aware and make some assessments out of that information. Second one is in Luke 14, 28 and 29. He talks about building a tower. And he says, who among you is building a tower is not going to count the cost, work out beforehand what it's going to cost, what time commitment and so on, because if he then starts a tower and can't finish it, he's going to be foolish. So again, there's an injunction to us. Become informed, become aware, think through things carefully, and plan accordingly. Okay, let's step right back to when Nehemiah first heard the news from his brother. When I heard these things, writes Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. His very first response, and it happens over and over and over again in this passage, is he prayed. He didn't go talk to people first. He didn't throw up his hands and say, oh, horror, woe is me, nothing can be done. He prayed. But I want you to note how he prayed. This wasn't a perfunctory prayer. This wasn't an item on his prayer list like, I'll jot that down for Monday. 
You know, Monday, it's praying for the nation. Tuesday, I'll pray for Granny's corns. Thursday, I'll pray for new Mercedes-Benz, etc. No, he was heartbroken. He was so exercised. It talks about mourning. He was, he was emotionally engaged. And this was the land of his birth. He grew up here. He spent his boyhood here. This was where his heart was. And he mourned. He was brokenhearted that his nation lay in ruins. And he hadn't been aware of it before. He just thought, oh, things are probably fine back home, you know. But they really weren't. Then he fasted. In our day and age, we often think of fasting as some kind of religious prescription. You know, if we fast hard enough, God will say, no, good boy, five, five brownie points, I'll listen to your prayer. It's nonsense, of course. Fasting is the most natural response to a broken heart. Come on, who amongst us have not experienced great deep emotional trauma? And tell me, how much eating do you want to do then? Like none. Fasting is the response of the body which says, my whole world is upside down. And from that basis of emotional and physical engagement, he spoke to God. This is a heartfelt prayer. Read it. It's all here in the very first chapter of, of Nehemiah. Now, interestingly, in his prayer, he acknowledges his own culpability. He says, God, I know that I am part of the problem. Well, there's nobody in this nation of ours, I'm sure there's nobody in Zimbabwe either, who can, who can claim not to be some part of the problem, irrespective of our backgrounds and our ethnicity and so on. We're all part of the problem to one extent or another. And we need to acknowledge our culpability. He also asked for forgiveness for himself and for his people because he said, Lord, we've offended you. You know, we've offended you, God. We're really sorry about that. But I must confess, I'm personally so sick and tired of every prayer meeting that we have, inter-church ones and national ones and so on, spend this inordinate amount of time over and over again confessing our sin. I get tired of it. Of course it's a place where we have to start. Of course we must start by saying we're not taking the issue, we're part of the problem, we've offended God. Right, now get up from that place and make a difference. Start rebuilding Instead of this endless cycle of spending time, oh God, we're such a wicked people, etc., etc., etc. That's just a personal objection I have. But anyway, got that off my chest. <laughs> I want you to see how this prayer concludes. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Now his final words in this prayer. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So the, this man is obviously the king. Now, now listen to how he prays. He doesn't say, Lord, my heart is broken. Please won't you sort it out. Amen. He says, Lord, I want to be part of the solution. I want, please grant me favor. And grant me favor with my main contact point. I am the chief butler, the cupbearer, to the most powerful man in the known world at that time. I have 47, 24-7 access to this man. Please grant me favor so I can make a difference. But... 
all of us, and I know I've preached about this dozens of times, we all have our own circles of influence. I mean, okay, very few of us have access to the prime minister, the president of a nation. But we have our circles of influence. We have people that we can change, people we can enthuse, people we can shine the light of Jesus into their lives, people that we can speak positively to, people we can link arms with and work together for the restoration of our country. All of us have access to a circle of influence. But I know what it's like with us, and maybe it was the same for this man. We pray, we say, Lord, grant me favor, and we wake up in the morning, we say, so why haven't you grown me favor, Lord? What's the deal? You know, why haven't you done this thing yet? Do you know that although this man had, as I said, access every single day to the king, it was th only three months later that the opportunity came for him to speak. That three months was absolutely vital, as you'll see in the story. It was a time of preparation. We, we often pray, we say, Lord, please bring this about. And then we don't understand that there are things that the Holy Spirit has to get on and do. He has to change other people's hearts. He has to change our hearts. He has to bring us into circumstances. He has to bring other people into different circumstances if the prayer is to be answered. We must be patient and wait for what I've referred to many times in past years as the Kairos moment. The Kairos moment, that moment in time which we can clearly recognize when it happens, when everything is right, all the strings of destiny are drawn together, and the moment is right, and we know that God is with us, and we now need to act. We now need to speak. So, how did God respond to Nehemiah's request to grant him favor? Well, one day Nehemiah is performing his duties, and yes, it probably did include sipping the wine to make sure it didn't taste foul, it wasn't poisoned, etc. Appears. This was not a Stellenbosch style wine tasting. <laughs> this wasn't a hmm lovely nose. Do I detect tones of blueberry? Walnut wood? Rat poops? Now, I'm not just trying to be crude, but obviously Nehemiah must have looked like he had tasted wine that was flavored by rat poops because his face was downcast, so downcast, that the king notices and says to him, Nehemiah, why is your countenance so downcast? What's the matter, bud? And Nehemiah was panic-stricken. Why? He knew the rules. He knew that one of the big palace rules was don't be negative in the presence of the king. He's got to be a jolly jumbuck, not a sad fella. So he thought, well, this might be it, you know. I'm taking my life in my hand. But God was with him. And God's spirit gave him favor and enabled him to speak out boldly to this great leader of the known world. Just as the same Holy Spirit empowers us today, when our Kairos moment comes, when we know we must speak, we know we must act, but we tremble in our socks, the Spirit of God descends upon us and we have a boldness that is far beyond the natural. He enables us to do and to say what we need to do and say. Now, notice who took the initiative here, by the way. It's the king. This is not the man trying to manipulate, uh, excuse me, king, my, my, my sire, uh, I have something to discuss with you, you know? No. God moves so in his heart that the king 
takes the initiative and says, what's wrong? He speaks out with boldness. And then the king, instead of saying, right, that's it, you're out of here, off with your head, the king says, oh, how may I help you? What would you like me to do for you? I mean, this is a miracle all in itself, right there. In Nehemiah 2, verses 4 and 5, he records, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. He prays on the fly. He doesn't say to the king, Great king, I need to go and pray about this for a week. When I'm finished, my people will revert to your people. We'll reach out to your people. He, he prays on the fly, and he speaks with the boldness of the Spirit of God. The king says, okay, how long is it going to take you? Now, clearly, Nehemiah has worked all this out. For three months, that time of preparation, he's been giving deep thought to this because he answers the king straight away. He prays, okay, Lord, this is my moment. Be with me. Give me strength. King, I need to go, and I'm going to be gone a year, or whatever it is. And this is the part that I love. He doubles down. He then doesn't say, uh, you know, uh, thank you for granting my wish, sir, and backing out of the room. He then goes for broke. He says, oh, and by the way, sir, uh, I, I would like a letter of authority to give me right of passage. Oh, please send your palace guard with me to accompany me so I don't get robbed on the way. Uh, uh, how about some, some provision writs that I can take to the people to give me wood and free lumber and stones and all that so I can rebuild the walls. And the king says, yes. Puts his exemplar, his seal on it. And then Nehemiah acts. He's prayed, he's asked, and now he acts. He takes his letters of authority, he goes and collects his requisitions and all the things he requires, and he heads off to Jerusalem. Okay. We're at the halfway point in the sermon, so we've already drawn some positive lessons. I'm telling you, by the way, this is the halfway point, just to give you hope, so you, you, know, you know where we are on this thing. First point, he became aware. We've got to become aware. We must become informed. We must give careful thought, thoughtful citizens of, of the kingdom and of the nation, informed people. Two, pray before and during the whole process. Pray, pray, and then pray again. Pray on the fly. Pray in the morning. Pray as you walk. Pray when you sit down. Pray when you stand up. Pray when your heart is broken. Pray when your heart is sad. Pray when it's full of joy. Pray, pray, pray. And then, third point, act. Speak in terms of your belief. Act in terms of what you believe God is now saying in response to your prayers. We pray to seek God's wisdom, His guidance, His intervention. And then we need to act on his specific directions. Look, this is not a cookbook approach. You know, I can't stand here today, well, I could, but I won't, and say, look, here's a whole bunch of biblical principles, you know, for South Africa. If you go through this checklist, these are the things we need to be saying and doing. No, take it to God in prayer. And as you become convinced of what he's saying through reading his word, through talking with him, through meditating, through thinking deeply on it, and you're convinced, convinced that this is what God is saying to you, then speak that out and then act on that. Let me give you an example. 
Apparently in May we're having our elections, right? We don't know, quite know when, but it's apparently going to be in May. Last year, not last year, last time we had national elections, one of the sub-editors of a Christian magazine that I was actually writing a column for at that time, a monthly column, wrote this statement. Anybody who's a truly a Christian will surely know there's only one party to vote for. Because there's only one party that adheres to Christian biblical values. Therefore, if you vote for any other party, you're not truly a Christian. You know, I took actual great exception to that and wrote to that and say, you know, really, this is not helpful. What we must do in May is pray. Become informed. Understand the nature of the problem. Consider the options. Take it saturated in God's presence and then from that place rise up and with the conviction of what we believe is right, do it. We must vote. No vote is no action. It's a useless thing. But we act not because somebody has said this is what a Christian must do. We act because this is what we believe is good and pleasing to God now for us and our nation at this time. Back to the story. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, and after he had assessed the situation, and he checked out the wall and what had to be done, etc., he called all the people and their leaders together. And he set the challenge before them. This is in Nehemiah 2, verses 17 through 18. He says this, and it's worth taking careful note of this. He said, You see the troubles we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Look how he spoke. Positively, constructively. He said, come people, you see the problem. The gates are ruined, the walls are down, we're vulnerable, we are in shame. Now come, let us build together. Let's rebuild this baby, you know. And he encouraged them. Then he said, and this is the most important part of all, he said, and God's favor is upon us. Because look what he's redone for me. Guys, do you realize that the most important man in the known universe actually, instead of taking my head off my shoulders, actually asked me what he wanted, what I could, what he could do for me? And he is supporting this. Look at this. I've got his signature right here. God is with us. So he encourages them, he speaks positively, and he gets them into action. Now again, important point. As soon as he went public, as soon as he spoke out publicly, what happens? The opposition swung into action. Nehemiah 2.19 But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Amorite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? You know, you know how rich this is, huh? I mean, the king knew everything about it. The king approved it. The king had given his written consent and resources to do this. How rich is this that they accuse him of treason? You know, we're living in the same world. The, the things, the stories that people are spreading around are absolute outrageous, outrageous nonsense. But they sprout it out because people will just believe it. But it's nonsense. 
A modicum of thought and a modicum of research lets us know, hang on, this ain't what it is. But this is how the enemy operates. Now, Sanballat was an influential Sumerian, Samaritan, shall I say, rather. And he lived right in the heart of the nation. So he was in an area right in the middle of Israel. He was an influential man. Tobiah was a government official who had married into the Jewish priestly family. He was well-connected, huh? <laughs> he was a well-connected man. And he was a government official. And Geshem was a foreign national from Arabia. Ringing any little bells yet, huh? Crazy how these things just keep on repeating through the, the millennia. And tell me, why do you think they were opposing Nehemiah so, vivid, so, so avidly? Because they were living on the corruption and ill-gotten gain of a nation that was basically ungoverned. They were thriving on the chaos. They were thriving on the disunity. They were thriving on the bad things that happened. You'll read a bit later. They were plundering the poor particularly and encouraging the people to take money from the poor as well. That's why they were so opposed. Where have we heard that recently? So they mocked, they ridiculed, and they accused Nehemiah of treason. But listen to how Nehemiah responds. Chapter 2, verse 20. I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. But out. This is God's work and we are about it. You can rant and rave and you can threaten and you can do what you like. But we are going to get ahead and we're going to rebuild this wall. And rebuild the city. And the result was that the people made great progress. They did. They got on building the wall and they made huge progress. And then the evil tripartite alliance. Oh, shouldn't have said that, but they were three. Opposed them again. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. But opposed them again. And this time they got angry and ridiculed them in public. But Nehemiah responds, how do you think? Okay, you're all alive, huh? Everybody awake? We're, we're approaching the end. Wake up. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, and they prayed. Nehemiah prayed. That's what he did. But this time he asked God to deal with them. It's very significant. This time he says, no, Lord, you deal with them. Why? Because he's basically saying, Father, I'm about your business. I'm rebuilding this wall. That's what I want to do. I haven't got time for this nonsense. Lord, you sort them out. They're blaspheming your name ultimately. You sort them out. I'm going to get on with the work that you've put my hand to. Now, the wall was now half finished, and the opponents again attempt to stop them. And this time... They tried to meet together secretly to stir up trouble. Let's have a little riot over there. Let's have a little bit of slander over there. Why don't we badmouth a few people over here and we light a few fires in the Cape down there and so on and so forth. And again, where have we heard that? I think you know there was a place, a holiday place called Joppa on the coast. They probably went and met at Derby. I mean Joppa. And... Um, in a hotel there and had this meeting to stir up 
the nation. <clears throat> Listen to how Nehemiah, what he does. He prays. And then he acts. He sets guards along the wall. And he splits up each shift into two lots. One lot he gives spades and shovels and mortar and so on and chisels. And they build the wall. And the other half of that shift, he gives them spears and swords. And they stand guard. He prays. He's assessed the situation. He hears the threats. He sees the problem in the nation. He takes action. Non-violent action. Defensive action. And something I admitted to the morning services, he also creates a, a communications network, by the way. He also sets up uh, their, their form of a communications network to keep everybody informed as to what was happening and, and where they could rally and so on and so forth. Then this is what he says to the people. Nehemiah 4 verse 14. He gathers his people again. He says to them, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your home. That applies to us today. Fight, he didn't mean go and you know, take lives. Obviously, he was in a defensive mode. But, but stand firm. This is important, he's saying. This is the, the prosperity and the posterity of our nation, of our family, of our children, of our great-grandchildren. Fight for it. Don't give up on it. Then his opponents acted again. Again, this is amazing how these things happen. Do you know how they do it this time? They try and set up a false indaba. They come to him and they say, Look, put your building stuff down and stop this wall for a while. Let's have a, big, let's have a big conference. You and all your men will get together and us and our guys and we'll have this big conference to try and find national peace. In other words, we'll keep you occupied on a sub-issue while you don't build the wall. And then we'll come and knock it down while you're sleeping. Nehemiah sees right through it. He basically says this, get lost. I'm not interested in your silly meetings. You can have as many meetings as you like. I am building a wall. And he gets on and he does it. The opponents start one last time. And their final strategy was to send a false prophet. A false man of God. Nehemiah is walking towards the house of a man he knew. So obviously they were friends. The man says, come in, come in, close the doors. He says, look, we've got a real problem. Have you heard? There's blood running in the streets, my brother. They're they, they, they at the walls. They're coming in. They're coming in. They've, they've mobilized all their forces. We, we've had it. Let's take all your workers and we go and barricade ourselves in the temple. Just another strategy. But this time saying, God says you must do this. What does Nehemiah do? You're speaking out of the imagination of your mind. I am not going to pay any heed to you. Would a man of God actually listen to what you're saying? No. Now, push off. Prayer and godly positive action over and over and over and over again. You know, folk, we have survived a lot of things in this country, going back to the Rundepest, but particularly in the last few years. Been, there's been a lot of stuff that we as a nation have had to deal with and are still dealing with, but have we not seen the hand of God coming through? 
Have we not seen and marveled and said, exactly as Nehemiah did, remember the Lord who is great and awesome? How can we not look back just to the last 24 months and say, oh, remember the Lord. He's great and awesome. Look how he acted. Look how he stretched out his hand. Look how his favor has been upon us. We have another tipping point. The third major one in 24 months approaching in May. It's going to be a really important time for us. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I personally think that the next nine months or so are going to be extremely difficult, even dangerous. I believe that we need to expect it, maybe plan for it, but not be afraid of it. For remember the Lord, for He is great and awesome. The enemy are going to be up to every trick known to man in the next six months or so, and even maybe after the elections a little bit, trying everything they knew, everything they've ever done since Nehemiah's day, pulling out all the stops to try and wrestle back control so they can once again plunder this nation of our birth. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. If you'll allow me to, I'm going to ask you to actually show that you're still alive by, um, by just repeating that with me. It's a good old Pentecostal practice I picked up when I was first saved. Every now and then we need to actually affirm these things out loud. So I want you to say with a ringing tones and great conviction, remember the Lord for He is great and awesome. Remember the Lord for He is great and awesome. Okay, let me tell you quickly in closing how the story ends. We always like the good end to a story, right? Here's how it ends. They completed the wall. Nehemiah 6.16 When our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Amen. And we can look to the same thing, I'm sure. But wait, there's more. The exiles started returning in their numbers. They said, oh, the nation of our birth is doing well again, you know. GDP is up over 3%. <laughs> And they sold their houses in New York and Boston and Auckland and Sydney, right? And they all flooded back in, just like maybe they will do again in our day. But wait, there's more. The entire nation covenanted again before God. For one whole day, the high priest Ezra read out to the people the entire book of the law. They stood in the sun from sunrise to sundown. Every man, woman, and children. We think Bloemfontein was a big prayer meeting, right? There was a million and two hundred, whatever it was. This was the whole nation. Okay, it was quite a small nation at that stage because they were really beaten up. But the whole lot comes together in Jerusalem. And they covenanted. They said, Lord God, we will commit ourselves again to you and to you alone. They publicly return to the Word of God. And the Word of God is much more than just a law or a set of writings. The Word of God is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Aren't we in a, such a time right now again? Are we not? Is this not a time 
for prayer and godly action? Is this not a time to oppose the enemies of our nation, not with violence, but with the godly positive principles of the Word of God, being beacons and lighthouses and facilitators of real change around us, instead of being scared and whimpering, and instead of saying, let us rebuild, we say, let us flee. Isn't it such a time? I think it is. Is it not a time for the nation to return to the Word of God and to covenant again before Him? We can uh, wear one of two shirts as we go into 2019. Gloom and doom? Richard likes that one. Or bright, positive optimism. Choice is yours. Amen.